Well, welcome to the Someone to Tell a Two podcast today. We're so glad, as always, that you are joining with us. Stephen Tang is our guest, and we were introduced to him by our former board chair, Brian Duke. And they have been friends and collaborators with one another, and we're so grateful for Brian for introducing us. We, we hadn't known Stephen before, but we are glad that we know him now. We had this delightful conversation, and we learned a lot from him, and both, both professionally and, and personally. And it was a it was a conversation we really pleased that we had. So let's just tell you a little bit about who Stephen is. Stephen Tang is highly acclaimed, multiple award-winning chief executive officer, entrepreneur, and civic leader dedicated to the growth of innovation and entrepreneurship throughout the world. For over 30 years, he has served as chairman or chief executive officer for public corporations in life, science, and energy technology leading nonprofits, and key government advisory boards. He knows the journey from outsider to insider as the son of Chinese immigrants to the United States. Through that journey, Steve has been proclaimed as a Renaissance man for his many passions and achievements. Dr. Tang was the Chief Executive Officer of Orashore Technologies, Inc. from 2018 to 2022. In the face of the coronavirus crisis, Steve's focus on cultivating a compassionate workplace allowed his team to both stay safe and achieve tremendous success, resulting in impressive growth for the company. He and his wife, Jill, live outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, Steve, it's so nice to finally meet you and to have you as a guest on the Someone to Tell To podcast today. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Been looking forward to this. Steve, one of the things that we love to do here at Someone to Tell To with all of our guests that we've really kind of started this season, it's now our fifth season of the podcast, we just love to ask a simple question, but we know it's it's one with profound meaning and just a simple phrase of tell us about yourself. I appreciate that. That's a simple yet provocative question <laughs> for somebody that just wrote a book who, who's in large part, the book ends with me in a self-discovery. So who I am has been evolving over time. And certainly I can point to the fact that I'm a, I'm a husband, a father, a grandfather. Those are wonderful roles that I love to play in my life. I've had a long professional career. I've been fortunate to be a business and civic leader. But you know, the search for myself is the main reason I, 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 I wrote the book. There are certainly professional roles and personal roles, but I'll take a more basic answer, which is I'm, I'm a soul living a human existence for a short period of time on this miracle we call earth you know the the amazing thing about this planet and the lives on this planet is you know it's four and a half billion years old as a planet and most of us are here only for about 80 years and so i've been here for 62 years and so i'm in my last few decades so i look at that with both wonder mystery awe and gratitude that I'm here and, and uh, you know, able to address the miracle and the challenges we have here as, as humans. And, uh, you know, I would say that I've had great opportunities to make an impact, positive impact on this world. I'm a person that wants to continue to do that. And I, I kind of boil my life's mission down to belong, lead, and elevate communities near and far. So that's, that's who I am. Thank you for Thank that you. humbling reminder today. That's right. Where we find ourselves. 
Could, could you say more? There's something you said there about you look at this as with wonder, mystery, and awe, and gratitude. Could you say more about that, about each of those things, Where about the wonder, the, the mystery, the awe, and the gratitude about your, your life, and, and as you look at it in, this, in, the, in the scheme, the larger scheme of the, this, this ancient, ancient world <laughs> that we live in? Well, I'll, I'll go to the master of, of quantum physics, Albert Einstein, who said, you know, you can view life as it's either all a miracle or it's not, none of it's a miracle. And so I guess I've chosen to view life and, and all of its challenges and opportunities as miracles. And if you think about it at a molecular and a chemical level, the makeup that we all have and the moderation and climate and life that we have on this planet versus any other planet that we're aware of, I think it's all a miracle. And so that's why I chose the words all and mystery and gratitude, because I think it's all wrapped up together. And it's hints of, I think, a religious and spiritual journey I've been on all my life, a way to intersect that with leadership, the COVID pandemic. There are a whole bunch of things that come together that bring me to that statement today. But I, fir- I firmly believe it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's it's something that helps me get up with vigor and, and, and enthusiasm every single day. Thank you. Before we do a deeper dive into your book, just thank you for having written it. We had the opportunity to immerse ourselves in your writing over the last couple days. And we look forward for you to having the chance to share your message with the world. We'd, we'd love to ask you some questions about the book. And uh, at the very beginning of your new book, A Test for Our Time, Crisis Leadership in the, nec- in the Next Normal, you begin with a quote by Joan Clark to Alan Turing, computer science and artificial intelligence pioneer in the movie The Imitation Game. Sometimes it is the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. There has to be a reason you began the book with this quote. What is the story behind it? I love that movie and I love that quote because it signals an overall theme in the book, which is this is a triumphant underdog story about a company that did remarkable things, unexpected things during the pandemic. And so the specific reference, I think, from just the the company and what we did is, you know, Orshore Technologies in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania medical diagnostic company that's been around as a public company for about 23 years now. It's not very well known, probably not very well known in Pennsylvania, let alone the rest of the world, but it's done some unique things in innovation. But we're a, we were a, a tiny little company in a industry of, of giants. So most people know a company called Abbott. Uh, Abbott has a thousand times more employees than Orishore does. Another of our competitors, Quidel, which also ended up making COVID rapid tests, has seven times as many employees as Orshore. So I make a reference in the book to the little engine that could, which I think is appropriately who Orshore was. Uh, and then the other thing about the quote is it sets up a metaphor that I use in the introduction to talk about the infamous ship Ever Given, which blocked the Suez Canal and the role of a unsung hero named Abdullah Abdel Gawal, who was the excavator. Many people saw the meme of this gigantic ship in this tiny, tiny excavator trying to dig the ship out as a metaphor for either lost causes or the triumphant underdog. 
And the story is clearly about the triumphant underdog. So that's why I opened the book in that way. You've also written, as we grapple with the ongoing realities of the pandemic, good leaders need to stay resilient and prepared for whatever challenges may come their way. But that requires more than just a willingness to face uncertainty. It means leading whole people wholeheartedly, both now and in, and in the next normal. That means having an authentic connection with those you lead, demonstrating that, that you, you genuinely care about their well-being beyond simply expecting productive work from them by cultivating meaningful relationships rooted in trust and understanding, we can continue pushing forward no matter what lies ahead. And then you've also written that leading wholeheartedly requires an emotional connection through sincere expression. What does it mean to lead whole people wholeheartedly and to have a sincere expression that leads to emotional connection. We're very intrigued by that because the work of emotional connection is what we are about with people. And, and so this, this resonates very strongly with us. And we'd like to hear some more about what you think, what you think of that and about that. Yeah, so that's a central theme of the book, lead whole people wholeheartedly. I had this great debate with my editor about whether to word it like that. The editor's comment was, well, what does is, what is leading half people wholeheartedly mean, right? And I, I was pretty insistent in leaving that in. And here's what I mean by the whole people part of it. You know, during the pandemic, most of us were in isolation for long periods of time. And it turned out that your living place ended up being your workplace, ended up being your school place for many families and people, right? I mean, under one roof, you had a... a you know, hotbed of activity going on. And so people's lives were not easily segmented into now I'm working, now at home, now I'm with family. It all kind of meshed together. And I think the the central lesson for me as a leader, which I think was the essence of why Orshork succeeded, is that we led and, and understood that we were leading whole people. In other words, we're not just leading employees who are on the clock, so to speak, uh, to do something that we want them to do, task them for results. That's just not what happened. You know, people were juggling many things in their home, worried about their own safety and health and that, that of their family, you know, the noise level of, of truth or untruth that was out there promoted by, by some leaders created a large noise level also. And so essentially, what we discovered at Orshore, what I discovered is that we had to really connect with whole people. We had to understand that they were in dire shape as everybody was. And getting them productive employees was only part of the objective. And so, you know, so whole people, that's what that means. Leading whole people wholeheartedly, the wholeheartedly part means really engaging their mind, their body, and their spirit. And, and the walls between, let's say, the intellectual part of the job and the spiritual part of the job and taking care of their their mental health, their physical health, all those things were vitally important. And the the book goes into some detail about what I call the trust formula. And so all this 
leadership and wholeheartedness and whole people is really based on creating high levels of trust. So what are the levels, what are the components of trust? There's credibility, which is you say what you're, 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 you're going to do what you say you're going to do, right? Which is, you know, I've got an objective and I'm going to deliver on it. That's certainly part of it. But then there's another portion called intimacy, which means I'm going to believe you and trust you and have faith in you because I know you have my back. I know you care for me, genuinely care for me. You know, Orshore could not have gone from a company that was doing in the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue to today doing 400 million plus in revenue with twice the employee base hired during the pandemic and a manufacturing capacity five to six times higher than it was before the pandemic, unless we had high trust to make that transformation. So wholehearted leadership has to do with increasing the trust level between employees and between the leaders and the employees to really help transform the company under dire circumstances. And, and there was a communication part of that clearly. And uh, you know, the letters I wrote to employees every week, I tried to role model the type of vulnerability and positivity that I thought was important to us together. There's a key listening part of this as well. And uh, I sure, I'm sure we'll dig into that a little bit more, but you know, it's, it, it became clear to me that we needed to hear the dilemma that everybody was in uh, so that they felt fully expressed and heard before we jumped in as bosses and said, here's what I need you to do. And so we needed to understand that they had tremendous challenges during the pandemic, both both in, in the family and in the, in, in, in the, in the workplace. And, you know, I, I think ultimately it led to striving for not just the golden rule, but the platinum rule, right? The platinum rule is, you know, you treat others the way that they want to be treated, not just the way that I want to be treated. Okay. Whereas the golden rule is, is, you know, do unto others as, as you want done to yourself. Well, the main difference is you need to hear people and understand how they want to be treated and not just assume that they want to be treated the same way you do. And I think it was important to leaders because as I said to the people of Orshore, I recognize that we were all in the same storm together. That's the pandemic, right? But we were all in separate boats. Uh, and we all, each had, were playing out this drama separately. And I felt my job as a leader was to ensure safety of those boats and those sailors, you know, the employees, the people of Orshore and their families, as much as I could, as much as I could influence them. And so I think the clearly unexpected part of this is that we came together closely as a company, which pre-pandemic, you could not have predicted. I mean, if you told a, a leadership expert that, you know, we're going to have people working out of homes and this company is going to try to grow its revenue by a factor of four and its manufacturing ca capacity by a factor of five or six, they would have told you it could not have been done. I mean, you, you, there's just no way to connect to people to get them to drive the kind of transformation we need from them. Uh, with everybody so spread out and and dis and apparently disconnected, but that's not what happened to Orshore. We in fact were able to do it all. So I think that that's that's what's what's meant. Sincere ex expression, I think, is really understanding that you know people want to have shared stories. You know they want to see vulnerability in their leaders. Um, so there's a lot to that, obviously, and then we can unpack it a bit more, but, you know, that's what, what's meant by leading whole people wholeheartedly. And as I said, you know, before the pandemic, maybe that was considered the soft skills or the softer side of the business. 
I think during the pandemic, it became essential to the business. It is, it is certainly essential to, to Orishore's success. Right. Yeah, Steve, you mentioned this phrase, caring for people's mind, body, and spirit. Just curious where that came from. Like, for many of us as leaders, we want to model better leadership than maybe we experienced ourselves previously. We work with a lot of toxic work environments, and it's incredible to us. For example, yesterday, as you heard before we started recording, we were speaking in Philadelphia. And after having given one of our talks, there was a woman who came up and she's a, an executive for a company. And gosh, she was just describing the toxic work environment that she's involved in right now. And she's not at the top. So she has a hard time setting the pace that she'd like to set or the, you know, em- embracing the kind of culture that she would like to have. And so what, you know, where does that come from with you and your story? Well, I think culture is a hard thing to d- develop in a pandemic, right? I think you, you start with the culture at a certain place and it either evolves or devolves depending on its, its overall health, right? So the link to mind, body, and spirit, I think it was pretty natural. First of all, the pandemic threatened all of us. And so we had to we had to focus on healthy bodies, healthy habits to create healthy bodies and, and maintain health. And that was being, you know, consistent with people ensuring that they were socially distancing and wearing masks and protecting themselves and their family. And, you know, we were extremely lucky that there were very few incidences of, of primary COVID transmission in, in due to employee contact. There were others, of course, you know, community-based and you know, outside of the work environment for sure. But that became a natural thing. So the body part of it was natural. The mind part of it, I think, you know, I'm an advocate of meditation and prayer to to help calm people's minds in in, in difficult circumstances. There was an increasing focus on mental health over time, something that wasn't talked about primarily in the workplace before the pandemic, and I think now is here to stay in terms of the consciousness of what leaders ought to be addressing. The last one is spirit, which I think is, I actually advocated strongly for people finding their spiritual bearing, because number one, I was, and I was sharing that with folks. Uh, Number two, a lot of churches, synagogues, mosques, people's places of worship weren't open, right? And so how are they going to find community with their, with their, with their spiritual community unless somebody instigated that? And so I wasn't calling them to be of one religion or one spiritual orientation or other, but encouraging them to connect with that as best they could. And so the pandemic, I think, was the, the closest thing to, you know, sort of a wartime mentality I think we've had in this country and in this world collectively together at the same time. I mean, certain parts of the world are always, unfortunately, I think, facing those terrible circumstances, but we were all in this together. So I think it it really required leaders to take a very circumspect, holistic view of the, the drivers of people's overall health. And that's why, to me, wholehearted leadership was based on connecting mind, body, and spirit and speaking that language in the way that we wanted people to think of their own health and the health of their family and the health of their communities. 
kind of response did you receive for that, that perspective and that way of leadership? I, I think we think it's fantastic and really, really love it and, and your perspective on all of it. But how, how was that received and, and responded to? Well, the letters that I wrote to my employees, which are, were called Monday Morning Motivations, you know, they they started off, I think people viewed them as more like love, more like newsletters, right? Oh, you know, but the tone of the, the, the letters that I wrote, I think were trying to be as open and honest as possible that, you know, if, if I didn't know the answer to what to do, I at least shared with how we were thinking about things. And over time, I think those one-way newsletters became two-way dialogue between me and, and employees at various levels of the company in various locations and various functions. And so the reaction, I think, to the approach of mind, body, spirit was extremely positive. You know, it spoke to, in the trust formula, formula the credibility and the intimacy part. I tried to share with them that, you know, I clearly didn't know everything, you know, I was not going to be the sage on the stage. I was going to be more of the guide on the side because I was going through this and trying to discover what the solution was to get us out of the pandemic as much as anybody. And, you know, I think that they they appreciated both the vulnerability and the positivity that I tried to share with them as a leader. So I think there's something very special about the bond between employees and employees to leaders that I try to role model. Steve, one of the phrases that we absolutely love, and it made us laugh as we were reading it in your book, was just this phrase of embrace the suck. <laughs> Could you just explain where that phrase came from and what it means to you, what it meant for your work culture, and just kind of what it means for you individually? Sure. Well, that's a reference to the author, Sean Engbright, who wrote a book called Invisible Leadership. And Sean is an ex-military guy, and, and I think that that... that phrase embrace the suck which some people like and some people don't like essentially means you can't sugarcoat it right if if we're in a bad situation the worst thing you can do as a leader is try to convince people that that you know more about it than you do and then it's not going to last very long okay so embrace the suck in the pandemic meant i don't know how long it's going to last all right and i don't know uh, if this transformation is actually going to work, uh, will we be able to put a COVID-19 rapid test in the market that Oprah Winfrey calls the easiest test of its kind to use? Now, none of that was certain. Uh, this is just like normal product development. We had to go through steps to get there. But it meant being sort of brutally honest, seeking the unvarnished truth with them together and really making it safe to not know. And making it safe to not know, I think, encouraged questions and encourage people to be courageous with their questions, sometimes even critical. So those are all elements of, of embrace, embrace the suck. And, you know, I think that, you know, back to my comment about that we're in the same storm, but in different boats, it recognizes that everybody's version of embracing the suck was a little bit different too. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. 
We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. You've also written about the the fact that, or the need, that it's important to have people around us who can challenge us and our, our ideas and, and, you know, and help us to see our blind spots. Tell us what, you know, why you, why you embrace that and how easy or hard is it for you to have blind spots pointed out to you and, and to be challenged and, and what has that, how has, how has that helped you? Well, we all have blind spots, and I don't think any of us can say definitively that we've cured ourselves from having blind spots because, you know, we're, as John Legend sang, we're, we're, we have perfect imperfections as humans, right? So that's why we need other people to be mirrors for ourselves and, you know, point out areas that we're, we're, we're skewing or biased or just plain wrong, right? So it was important that we, you really embrace blind spots and have the ability to challenge and, you know, even have constructive conflict, right? Because we were doing something as a company we had never done before, even under the best of circumstances. The company had not grown at that level for its 20-year history at any time. You know, the the interesting stat about Orshore and its, its product line was, you know, we had up to the time of the pandemic manufactured a grand total of about 80 million of these rapid tests in our history over 20 years. You know, we now have the capacity to manufacture as a company at Orshore 80 to 100 million tests a year. So it's that's that type of transformation that we went through during the pandemic. And so there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk and a lot of calculated risk we took to get there. So it's important that we we try to to unveil the truth together. And so having as few blind spots as individuals and as working teams and as a company, I think became vitally important. Now, did I do it perfectly? Far from it. And, you know, you know, I, I write about my failures in, in retrospect in the book and I do so because it's true, number one, but also I think that, that because of the credibility gap between leaders and their people today, uh, it's important that leaders be very forthright about their own their own failures, uh, you know, because I think it's it's good role modeling for everyone else to be uh, to to have it well understood that the leader is going to do this. Then I'm expected to do so as well. Uh, you know, in the toxic environments that you've probably encountered, the problem is 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 not that you know that nobody you know will talk about failure. It's that you get punished for talking about failure, right. you know, and there's more uh, of a culture to delegate blame than to, you know, rise above that to solutions. And so I think it's it's vitally important if you're going to have a healthy culture based on innovation and calculated risk that you avoid as many blind spots as possible and that you talk openly about failure. Yeah, we've often used the phrase that failure isn't failure once we learn from it. It's just part of Precisely. growing. It's part of being a better version of ourselves and who we ultimately are striving to be. 
Steve, one of the things that we definitely wanted to highlight in our conversation today is one of our six steps to compassionate listening is practicing self-care. And in your book, self-care is one of the main themes. And on page 107, you write about making the health, safety, and well-being of our people the non-negotiable priority. Could you just say more about how that led to the collective effervescence that led your team to do more than they ever dreamed? And how do you continue to practice and encourage others to practice self-care? Well, I think leaders have to role model it, right? And so I think you know, one example is during the pandemic, we had a running and walking challenge where you logged in your steps and, you know, collectively we had, you know, groups or teams or individuals rise to the top during of that challenge. So you really want to recognize and reward people for, for taking care of themselves. You know, I went into some detail about the different types of work styles that people have. I mean, some people are integrators and some people are separators, right? Integrators can move between fluidly between personal business and professional business segmenters need firm boundaries. You know, they're, they're the prototypical I'm working nine to five and then, you know, don't talk to me. Right. Well, if, if you have folks that have different orientations about integrators or separators, they need their own flexibility to take care of themselves in all aspects of self-care, not just exercise, but eating well, right. Making sure that their mental health is 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 being um, you know explored. So I think all those things were based on my observation when I became CEO of the company that there were some pretty unhealthy senior executives and board members that I observed. And so and and I was one of them, by the way. So you know this is a this is a an area where you know the personal is universal. And so making that observation and making that commitment on my behalf and then behalf of the people in the, in the, in the company, I think became very important. What was some of the unhealthiness that you yourself experienced and some of the other leaders that you, you saw? Well, you know, my career history has been one of being a, a very hard charger where in most of my, <laughs> most of my career, I didn't know the word self-care. I don't think it existed for a lot of it either. So I didn't take care of myself in terms of what I ate or, or, or you know, how much I exercised and, and it caught up with me. I talked about, you know, one seminal moment in my career where I made a presentation to the executive, top executives at Johnson & Johnson, and then the presentation went well, but I was landed in the hospital that same night with an emergency appendectomy, mm-hmm. you know, so that's not good. And then later on in life, you know, I was diagnosed with, with colon cancer. And so... I had to go undergo surgery and, uh, you know, had to take care of that. So this is the old adage that, you know, sometimes situations like that will repeat themselves until they really get your attention. And then <laughs> I think if if we're lucky, we finally see how the dots connect and eventually we learn to take care of ourselves. I think I was just fortunate that this all coincided with the pandemic and became a, a rallying cry to the company, to its people, to take a better care of themselves. I love this idea that you've created around a reward system for self-care. That's not something I've ever, ever really thought of before because we could probably make a strong argument for those of us who are just more bent towards being caregivers. And if you're a good leader, you're probably a good caregiver. We're not drawn to self-care and so we, there should be some incentives to caring for ourselves. That's just such a, 
a good point that I had never really thought of before. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, in, in the pandemic, unlike other situations, certainly that in my lifetime, you know, you there was it was pretty democratized. I mean, the the pandemic and and the the virus had its effect on everybody. It didn't care who your, what your social status was or what your title was, right? So CEOs couldn't go jetting off someplace to get to that was free of the virus. And so that meant getting really used to, as I am right now, you know, working out of your dining room, you know, mm -hmm. under rather Spartan conditions. And I think that's a great humbling equalizer when we think about each of our lives and how we're, we're very similar in the kind of challenges we have. So it's a very human way of, of, you know, of caring for ourselves. I ask maybe a couple of questions that are a little bit more, even more personal. You've written that you were on a trajectory to become a Catholic priest as a young man. And we'd like, like for you to talk about what changed that trajectory for you. What developed to to have to make that change, and 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 throughout your career, did you have have you had any second thoughts about about that change? Do you, you think about that trajectory that you were on, but you you know that that you're not now, and how that altered the path that your life was on? Yeah, that that pathway to become a Catholic priest is is part of a broader story about my religious and spiritual journey. You know, I'm the son of Chinese immigrants. My family had religious traditions in many different denominations or faith. My father's parents were Buddhist. My mother's parents were Southern Baptists. Mm -hmm. uh, my father gravitated to the United Methodist Church, which is where I was raised. And then when I got to college at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, my father was diagnosed with cancer. And my roommate, devout Catholic, you know, was, I think, just just basically trying to reach me and, you know, invited me to go to Mass with him. I saw a certain affinity to that. While I was in college, I converted to the Catholic faith. I went home that summer, and to my surprise, both of my parents converted to the Catholic faith. So, you know, I've never been a evangelist in that respect, but I certainly took notice of that and said, well, you know, maybe maybe my calling is to take this sort of pastoral approach as my as my career but what competed with that is you know i have a the the family business if you will my family is is rich in scientists and engineers and in tradition that 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 really eclipsed i think the calling to the priesthood so i i kind of put that on the back burner i i think when my father died when I was 22 years old, you know, I was I was angry at God. I didn't really understand why he took my father after I tried to be so faithful, and and so I went through a searching process of my own with with religion. And you know, fast forward to today, I've been married for six years to Jill, who's who comes from a Jewish tradition. So you know, we're, we're adding many different flavors of religious and <laughs> spiritual Makes direction very... all coming together. But I think what what came together for me during the pandemic was this sort of pastoral approach to leadership, and you know, really connecting with people, whole people, wholeheartedly in ways that pastors do for the care of their 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 flock. Right. So 
I think I've found a, a, a way to express myself in, in, in that way, but it's been a, it's been a, an interesting journey for me. You know, I don't consider myself particularly attached to any particular religion right now. I think I have more of a spiritual universal orientation. There are aspects of Buddhism, there are aspects of Christianity and, and the Judeo Christian background that are very appealing to me, but you know, back to the Einstein comment about miracles. I think that there's something very universal and cosmic that brings us all together. And that makes sense to me now. Well, it, it actually, what you just said makes a lot of sense too. I, I think probably both noted, noticed and noted that the, your approach to your company and, and, and the people who are part of the company, particularly during the pandemic actually was a very, was very pastoral and you are living out what may have been and probably ha- is a calling for you. You're just doing it in a different way. And we, we applaud that and affirm that, that we think, we think that's wonderful. Well, you both have, you both have had pastoral ministerial journeys on your own, right? So I'd love, that, love to hear how, how, how you evolved as well. That, that, yeah, that's correct. Do you want to, do you want to start there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'd be lying if we said that we've, it's been an easy road, particularly around our, our perspectives on organized religion. We, we've kind of had our, our moments where we were all in on organized religion and we've had our moments where we probably would prefer to just find our community outside of church. But I think we have broadened our perspectives on what defines community. I think community to us is just wherever our few are gathered, where we're sharing a common vision, a common love for humanity, uh, you know, uplifting each other, encouraging each other to be our best selves. Yeah. It's just, it's constantly being refined. I think, I don't know if we necessarily, even could categorize ourselves at this point. I think that because of the listening work that, first of all, it is our spiritual beliefs and foundations that have led us to do the work that we're doing. That, that guides everything that we do and, and why we are doing this. There's that. But I think that the more we have listened to people and the more we have heard their stories, so many stories of brokenness and pain, loneliness, disconnection, stories of, of abuse, uh, stories of just rejection. I mean, we could, we could go on and, and don't want to just list all kinds of, you know, things that are, that, that are painful. But then we also have heard some stories of joy and gratitude and wonder, which are, are tremendous. But we've we've learned that, and I think maybe one of our one of our frustrations sometimes with organized religion is the bureaucracy of it on occasion and often, as well as the exclusivity of it that 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 I think has motivated us. And I think we are trying to we probably take a very, you know, in this broadly defined pastoral approach as well to the work that we're doing and to how we lead and want to be as inclusive as possible, as gracious 
as and, and grace filled as possible to to be as validating as possible to to everyone we meet that their stories their lives their gifts their abilities their presence in this world is valued and important that's a message we share all the time we remind people the the first foundation of our listening work is that you have to believe if you're going to listen well you have to believe that the person to whom or the people to whom you are listening have value and worth they have a story to tell and it matters and if you don't believe that you're not going to listen you're really not going to truly care and that that is foundational for us and that's the kind of message that we want to that we want to bring and and sometimes that wasn't always the message we were allowed to as easily give in an organized religious form. If that all makes sense, you're nodding your head. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes tremendous sense. And I think there's an analogy here to the business world, right? Which is, you know, there's a, there's a strong compliance culture in a business environment, usually enforced by human resources. And that is compliance to the EEOC regulations, right? So you don't want to have an environment where religion and spirituality is alienates anybody, right? But you want, I think, as you both said, you want the elements of people's beliefs and their and their spiritual guidance to bring them together, right? But I think what companies have done to excess is avoid the topic completely. And I think that that's, I don't think that engages people. I don't think it it really defines what motivates people's lives. And I'm not, there I'm not talking about employees, I'm talking about as people. And so what I try to do is encourage the dialogue. And so I, the spiritual journey that I just mentioned to you both, I shared with the people in our show in, in one of my weekly letters and encouraged them to share back with me. And many, many did so. And there were some, there were some, you know, poignant stories. There were also some difficult stories about how mixed religions and families didn't work out, but it really helped me understand people better and connect with them because they, they, they chose to share that with me and felt safe sharing with me. And I think when you create circumstances like that, you create people that are more courageous you know, they're willing to share of themselves. They're willing to hear stories. They're, they want to know your story. And so, you know, back to the focus on listening, right? If you invite people to talk, then you had better listen, right? That's because otherwise you've wasted a moment of, of, of connection and you've, you know, you probably lost points for insincerity as well. So I think that, I think that pastoral approach is important you know, back to leading whole people wholeheartedly. And it's something that has, has not been nurtured particularly well in in the professional environment, you know, all for the sake of being compliant, right? And I think that's an opportunity for leaders to really look at today. Steve, we want to end our conversation with a very serious question for you to consider. And just what is the legacy you want to leave for your life? Yeah, I'm at that stage in my life where I, I'm focused on that, right? 
And a lot is going into my thinking, you know, in the book, the last chapter is called Through the Looking Glass, which is a nod to Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland and the journey that Alice went on to discover who she was. And so that's a metaphor for my my discovery of legacy, but I'll connect it to where I started from, which is when you asked me, tell me about yourself, I said that, you know, I am I am committed to belong, lead, and elevate communities near and far. And so that's the starting point. In between that, I've tried to be a student of what's important and what's important to leave behind. And one of my guides on that has been David Brooks, who is urging people of all ages, not just people of my age, to focus on eulogy values, not resume values, right? And so eulogy values are those values that you hear at people's eulogy. And it's not very often that you hear all of their career and job stops and all the impact they made in their in their jobs and on business. <clears throat> you hear more about, <clears throat> excuse me, their role as a father, as a, as a spouse, as a friend in their community. And so that causes me to, to say my legacy, I hope, is that I have learned how to live, love, and lead wholeheartedly. And by wholeheartedly, I mean by everything we've been talking about this in this session. I like there's an African extension of that called Ubuntu, which is about living life well together. And I'd like to be known as somebody that instigated that, catalyzed that, and role modeled that. So I hope that's my legacy. Steve, thank you for that. That is beautiful. That's a beautiful legacy. Never heard the, 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 the phrase about, you know, not about leaving a legacy that is about our eulogy as opposed to our, you know, our resume. That, that, that that's wonderful. And I think that's what we're trying to do too. The very same thing. It's not about the resume, but, but about how, how we're affecting people's lives and the relationships that we've established. And, and we applaud you for doing the same thing and for the, for the purpose that you have, for the life that you have built and are continuing to build. And we, we just want to wish you well. And we thank you for being with us today, for what you've shared, for the, the very important concepts that you have, that you have brought out. And we just wish you all the best. Well, Michael and Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you. It, it, I loved hearing your journey through the ministerial world and where you are too. So thank you for sharing as well. Absolutely. Steve, how could people learn more about you and how could they find your book? Well, the book is on sale on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and hopefully many more bookstores around the world as time goes on. My website is www.tang.ceo. And I'd be pleased to hear more from folks that listen to you and I'd be happy to listen to them. Thank you. Thank you. I think what both Tom and I appreciated the most about this conversation today and about Steve's perspective and the way he the way he leads is that he takes an approach to people that is whole person, an approach that sees everyone as as not just someone who is doing a job, but someone who also has a life, has a life outside the, the office and the job, 
you know, as a whole person with, with feelings and thoughts and, and, and we try to take that same perspective and to our leadership that we, we want people to know that we care about them as people and not just as employees or team members, but that they are valued to, they are valued, that they are valuable because of who they are, not just about what they do. And we think that that is an approach that really makes a huge difference in the way that all of us can work together and actually do more because of it. I think what we found in our own work environments is the more we affirm people, and this is true for ourselves, the harder we want to work and produce better results and better outcomes because we know it is more than just, as you just mentioned, producing. It's about valuing people as people and that we're more than just our production. So we're grateful for Stephen's wisdom that he shared today. We're grateful for his experiences and just his level of vulnerability today was really profound as a leader and and how it, it ultimately changed his own corporate work culture through that vulnerability. So Thank you for tuning in today's program. We encourage you to always go through our website, someone2telltu.org, to learn more about how we collectively and jointly are helping the world to listen. So until we listen again.